Hello again, fellow flyers. Welcome back to the Plane Crash Podcast. This is your captain of the podcast, Michael Bauer. Today is the 28th episode of PCPC, and for episode 28, we're going to be taking a look at PSA Flight 182, a scheduled flight from Los Angeles International to San Diego International on Monday, September 25th, 1978. Later on in the episode, we'll be chatting with Mary Frances Riley, a retired PSA flight attendant that has seen how the incident that we'll be discussing today affected the PSA and San Diego communities over the past 42 years. It's been a little while since we had a new episode up. Tess and I traveled by car from Los Angeles to Edgartown, Massachusetts. We've also had a number of issues with computers and cell phones that we use to record the podcast and interview our guests, so I apologize for the delay. Thank you to our Patreon crew. Your support has been much needed during this time full of technical issues for PCPC. You guys are the saviors that keep this little show afloat. We just had a round of nominations for a new episode on Patreon, and now we're going to be moving along to voting on what that new episode should be. If you enjoy listening to us chat about these aviation accidents and you want to contribute to keeping this podcast around and in the world, please visit patreon.com forward slash plane crash pod. That's patreon.com forward slash plane crash pod, where you can be a supporter of PCPC for as little as one buck a month. Consider it your vote for the continued existence of this show. Thank you guys so much. We really appreciate your help. On the show today, let's see, who do we have here? Ah, yes, she's a world-famous elephant trainer and dedicated Frisbee enthusiast, Miss Tess Andrade. How are you doing, Tess? I'm doing great, and all of those things about me are true. I, I, I've seen it in action. Uh, how was your journey across the United States during the pandemic of 2020? It wasn't bad, Michael. It was definitely not the classic road trip experience, but I got to see some beautiful scenery from the car window, which made it all worth it. What was your favorite uh, thing you saw at the window? I love Utah. I think Utah is one of the most beautiful states. So everything in Utah was just spectacular. Yeah, Utah is very pretty. I uh, found out that McNuggets from McDonald's are actually quite delicious. Oh, you didn't know that already? I did not know that. I would advise everybody out there to go about it the way I went about it, which is only eat them once every 15 years. Right. But I learned that McNuggets are basically just tools to getting barbecue sauce and ranch in your mouth. They're sauce vehicles. Yes, vehicles for sauce. Uh, Did you feel safe about being out there? Safe about traveling? I felt pretty safe, Michael. I think the the hardest part was being in hotels, Mm -hmm. Um, but I took a lot of precautions and hotel staff seemed to be taking them as well. Everyone was wearing masks and it was a little uncomfortable, but um, we, we got through it. Yeah, not too bad. Well, Tess, we had some very sad news about nine days ago. On August 7th, 2020, Air India Express Flight 1344, a flight from Dubai to Calicut International Airport in India, skidded off the runway upon landing and plunged into a gorge where the fuselage broke apart into a number of pieces. The cockpit broke off from the rest of the plane and crashed into a wall. The tail of the plane broke from the middle section of the fuselage but didn't completely separate. There were 184 passengers on board with a flight crew of six for a total of 190 human beings on flight 1344. The crash resulted in 18 deaths, including both pilots in the cockpit and over 100 injuries. India, which had banned international flights to try and contain the coronavirus outbreak, has an ongoing government program 
where they're using Air India planes to fly Indian nationals that were stranded abroad back into the country in a controlled fashion. Flight 1344 was a flight to bring home Indians that had been stuck in the Middle East due to this travel ban. Unfortunately, the weather on August 7th surrounding Calicut Airport was awful. It's currently monsoon season in the region, and rainy conditions and low-level clouds reduced visibility to just over a mile. Calicut Airport has a tabletop runway with a steep drop-off on both ends, and there's no E-mass area to help slow down if they overshoot the runway. In 2011, a member of the Safety Advisory Committee of the Ministry of Civil Aviation in India called the runway unsafe and advised planes not to land during wet conditions. Reports of standing water on the runway and excessive rubber deposits from tires, which cuts down on friction and makes it harder for planes to slow down, have also been commonplace. So it's known as a very dangerous airport, not a lot of room for air, and the weather was horrible that night. Since the crash just took place a little over a week ago, it'll take a while for investigators to put together a report, but for right now, we know the plane was a 737-800 that took off from Dubai at 2.14 p.m. local time. After a normal four-hour flight, the plane arrived above Calicut Airport on schedule. The airport only has one tabletop runway. Initially, the pilots tried to land flight 1344 on runway 28, curling around and approaching the runway from the southeast. Due to the inability to see the runway with heavy rain and a strong tailwind, the pilots aborted their first attempt at landing, performed a go-around, circled above the airport for about 20 minutes, and made a second attempt at landing from the other direction on runway 10, hoping that conditions would be better. Flight 1344 was given clearance to land on runway 10 at 7.37 p.m. local time. Unfortunately, again, visibility was low, rains were intense, and the plane touched down 3,000 feet into the 9,000-foot runway, only giving the plane 6,000 feet to slow down safely. The plane touched down at 7.41 p.m. What exactly happened after touchdown, we do not know yet. There have been reports that the pilots may have tried to perform a go-around again once they realized where they had landed on the runway and the lack of room they had to slow down. Times of India reports that the throttles were found in the fully forward position and the spoilers were retracted from the position of the speed brake lever, which would support this theory. But at this point, it's speculation, and we'll have to wait for the report to come out before we jump to conclusions. We do know that the plane ended up plunging down the end of the runway into a gorge, breaking apart. Again, 18 human beings lost their lives and over 100 were injured. It's a very sad event and our thoughts go out to any of those of you that have been affected by this crash. What do you think, Tess? It seems like this airport had a reputation for it being dangerous to begin with. Yeah, it sounds like it. It reminded me a little bit of the Kingonias crash that we talked about a few weeks ago. Definitely. I had the same thought. I thought it's a notoriously dangerous runway. You got wet conditions, nighttime, so visibility is poor. Mm-hmm. Plane plunges downward and breaks apart, and the throttles may have been discovered at the fully forward position. Exactly. I think they're lucky that the plane didn't catch on fire. I mean, it slammed into the wall and broke apart, and we're lucky that only 18 people died, as unfortunate as that is. Yeah, definitely. I'm I'm shocked that there were as many survivors as there were. Yeah, it's unfortunate too. It seems like they had an issue. They came down initially 
we're dealing with these difficult conditions. I wish they just would have diverted to another airport. I know that's Monday morning quarterbacking, but obviously conditions weren't great to uh, land the plane. Another thing I was thinking is that uh, I just think EMAS needs to be everywhere. seems like at this point in the game, if you have a short runway, tabletop runway, dangerous air runway, that just seems like an accident that's eventually going to occur. Definitely. I've been talking up the idea of a ball pit at the end of a runway for yeah. a while now. Something. They need something to absorb the force of a plane that is having trouble slowing down. I think that would be good. Well, we'll keep an eye on this uh, incident and we'll get more information to you as it becomes available. Today's episode is brought to you by BetterHelp. What is BetterHelp? BetterHelp is the world's largest online counseling network. It's therapy for the 21st century world. In the past, if you wanted to see a therapist, you'd have to take off work, make an appointment between 9 to 5 on a weekday, drive across town and find parking. Well, life is much easier now thanks to BetterHelp. You can speak with an intelligent objective, qualified therapist at a time that works for you on your schedule, outside the restrictive hours used by traditional therapy. You can message your therapist 24 hours a day and set up weekly video sessions that you can do from the comfort of your own home. No driving, no parking, no hassles. It's just working on making your brain as healthy and happy as possible with the assistance of one of BetterHelp's certified professionals, for 10% off your first month, go to betterhelp.com forward slash plane crash pod. That's betterhelp.com forward slash plane crash pod. Thanks again to BetterHelp for sponsoring the show. And one thing I'd like to quickly highlight is how easy it is to get paired with a therapist through BetterHelp. In the past with therapy, I've had to do a lot of research and write a bunch of emails. But with BetterHelp, you take this very thorough questionnaire and you're paired instantly with a therapist. Yeah, it sounds like it contributes to the no-hassle environment with BetterHelp. So exactly. Check out BetterHelp. That's betterhelp.com forward slash plane crash pod. Before we get started with today's story, I like to mention at the top of every episode that I'm not a pilot. I didn't go to flight school. We started this podcast because we were nervous flyers. We thought that if we learn more about this subject that we were afraid of, it might tamp down some of those anxieties surrounding flying. We realize that what we were discussing today is a tragedy in the lives of many human beings out there. Someone's friend, co-worker, mother or brother died in this crash, and we do not want to be insensitive or disrespectful in any way. We just see plane accidents as historical events that are worth discussing. Painful lessons were learned from each incident that helped improve systems, fine-tune the design of planes, and elevate the abilities and skill sets of pilots. These lessons have helped shape the air travel system into the safe mode of transportation that it is today. Tessa, are you ready to get started on Flight 182? I'm ready, Michael. PSA Flight 182 was a scheduled flight from Los Angeles International Airport to San Diego International Airport on the morning of Monday, September 25th, 1978. The plane was a Boeing 727-214. The 727 was developed by Boeing in the late 1950s, early 60s, as a replacement for older quad jets, four-engine jet airliners, like the Boeing 707 and DC-8. At the time, Boeing was communicating with United Airlines, Eastern Airlines, and American Airlines about what type of future jet would suit the needs of their businesses. Boeing was essentially asking, 
What type of plane can we build you that you guys will definitely buy? What kind of plane do you think you're going to need to add to your fleet for the next 10 to 20 years? Well, all three airlines wanted a plane that wasn't as large as the Boeing 707. They all could agree on that. They wanted a plane that could service smaller airports, that could take off and land on shorter runways. They agreed on that as well. United, Eastern, and American couldn't agree on the number of engines this new, in the process of being designed plane would have. United had a hub in Denver, and they wanted a four-engine plane, which would make flying in higher elevations easier for them. Eastern Airlines did a lot of business flying passengers down to the Caribbean at the time, and there were regulations in place that prevented two-engine planes from flying over the water and being more than 60 minutes away from a runway to land on in case an emergency should arise. So Eastern wanted a three-engine plane, a plane they could use to transport customers down to the Caribbean and back and comply with regulations. Last of the three, American Airlines, they voiced their desire for a two-engine plane. American wanted a plane that was fuel-efficient and less engines meant less fuel consumption in their minds. So American fought for a two-engine jet. In the end, Boeing decided to try and compromise between the three airlines, and they eventually went with three engines, one more than American wanted, one less than United wanted. The engine placement on the 727 was pretty unique for Boeing. I think when most of us imagine a Boeing plane in our mind, we see two or four engines located underneath the wings on both sides of the aircraft. While all three engines on the 727 were located towards the rear of the plane, not under the wings. There was an engine on the left and right side of the rear fuselage, and a third engine located in the tail cone of the fuselage, in the center rear top of the plane. Because all the engines were at the back of the plane, this allowed the wings to be designed with flaps and slats that ran the entire length of the wing. There was none of the typical obstruction from engine pylons that you'd have to deal with if the engines were mounted below the wing. This helped increase stability when flying at lower speeds. Also, since the engines were not under the wings, but higher off the ground on the sides of the rear fuselage, the 727 could take off and land on gravel runways because it was less likely that foreign objects would be sucked into the engines and cause an issue. The 727 had a T-tail, similar to planes we've discussed in the past like the DC-9 and the Tupolev Tu-154. The 727 was the first Boeing plane to have an auxiliary power unit, an APU, which allowed it to have power on the ground without having to have the engine running. This was helpful at smaller airports that didn't supply ground power. Brakes were added to the nose wheels to help the 727 slow down on smaller runways. The 727 was a narrow-body jetliner, one center aisle with six abreast seating, Passenger capacity for the 727-200 series was between 134 to 155, depending on the layout, and eventually an advanced version of the 727 had a range of 2,550 nautical miles. The cockpit had a three-man layout. The first passenger flight on the Boeing 727 was on February 1st, 1964, with Eastern Airlines. Boeing would go on to sell 1,831 727s from 1960 to 1983, making it the most sold commercial jetliner until it was bypassed by the 737 in the 1990s. The 727 used for PSA Flight 182 was manufactured in 1968, 
and first entered service with Pacific Southwest Airlines on June 4, 1968. The plane had 24,088 hours in operation and 36,557 flight cycles. The captain of Flight 182 was Captain James McFerrin. Captain McFerrin was 42 years old at the time of the incident. He was hired by PSA in August 1961, so he had been with the airline for just over 17 years. Captain McFerrin qualified as a captain in the 727 in January 1967. Known to his colleagues as Jimmy, Captain McFerrin was from the San Diego area and was described as a born pilot that was always two heartbeats ahead of the situation. Captain McFerrin had 14,382 flight hours, 10,482 hours in the Boeing 727. The first officer of Flight 182 was First Officer Robert Fox. First Officer Fox was 38 years old at the time of the incident. He joined PSA in September 1969, so he had been with the company for nine years. First Officer Fox qualified as a first officer in the 727 in September 1970, and at the time was looking forward to beginning the training that would promote him to captain. The first officer had 10,049 flight hours, 5,800 hours in the 727. The flight engineer for Flight 182 was Flight Engineer Marty Wayne. Flight Engineer Wayne was 44 years old at the time of the incident and was hired by PSA in September 1967. He qualified in the 727 in October 1967. Flight Engineer Wayne had 10,800 flight hours, 6,587 flight hours in the 727. There were four flight attendants on Flight 182 and 128 passengers. With the three men in the cockpit, there was a total of 135 human beings on board. 30 of the 128 passengers were PSA employees, pilots, flight attendants, service agents, airplane mechanics that were trying to fly down to San Diego because PSA had a base of operations there. Pacific Southwest Airlines started operations in 1949 under the leadership of founder Kenny Friedkin. The airline initially only had one plane, a Douglas DC-3, and this DC-3 would fly a weekly route from San Diego to Burbank, and then Burbank to Oakland. The fare for the San Diego to Burbank trip was $5.65, and the price of the Burbank to Oakland flight was $9.95. Over the next 29 years, PSA, known as the world's friendliest airline and the first large discount airline, Grew its fleet to include Boeing 727s, 737s, Lockheed L-1011 Tri-Stars, Lockheed Electras, and Douglas DC-9s. Over its first 29 years in existence, PSA had a relatively blemish-free safety record, no fatal accidents. Our flight we'll be discussing today, Flight 182, started the morning of September 25th in Sacramento. The first leg of Flight 182 was an early morning flight from Sacramento down to LAX. 102 passengers disembarked the aircraft at LAX, while 100 others boarded the plane for the flight down to San Diego. Once again, 30 of the 128 passengers on the plane were PSA employees, just looking to get down to the airline's base at Lindbergh Airport in San Diego. After a few minutes of taxiing and after gaining clearance from the tower, At 8.34 a.m. on September 25, 1978, 
PSA Flight 182 blasts down the runway at Los Angeles International Airport and lifts off into the sky en route to Lindbergh Airport. The flight's only scheduled to be 30 minutes long. First Officer Fox is flying the plane, and Captain McFerrin is handling most of the radio communications. Flight Engineer Wayne is seated in the back of the cockpit, and an off-duty PSA captain, Captain Spencer Nelson, is a fourth person seated in the cockpit in a jump seat. Captain Spencer had more than 28,000 flight hours and was at one time a student and flight instructor at Gibbs Flight Center at Montgomery Field, located in the San Diego area. Coincidentally, 18 minutes before Flight 182 takes off from LAX, at 8.16 a.m., a Cessna 172 takes off from Montgomery Field with a Gibbs Flight Center instructor and a training pilot aboard. This is the same Montgomery Field and Gibbs Flight Center that our off-duty captain seated in the cockpit jump seat on Flight 182 used to work at. In the right-hand seat in the Cessna's 32-year-old flight instructor, an employee of Gibbs Flight Center, Martin Casey Jr. Casey Jr. had been working at Gibbs for the previous two years, and he had 5,137 flight hours. In the left-hand seat of the Cessna is 35-year-old David Boswell. Boswell's a certified pilot with 407 flight hours. The purpose of their flight is to do some instrument training for Boswell. During the Cessna flight, Boswell wears an instrument training hood that restricts his forward vision, limiting it just to his instrument panel, and the flight's overseen by the more experienced instructor, Casey Jr. The Cessna, flying under visual meteorological conditions, flies from Montgomery Field over towards Lindbergh Airport, where Boswell's going to practice his approaches to Runway 9 at Lindbergh using only his instruments. Lindbergh Airport, the world's busiest single runway airport, is the only airport in the San Diego area outfitted with an instrument landing system at the time, and Boswell is planning on making a number of missed approaches, just getting in some practice on making these approaches to a runway, relying solely on instruments. So the Cessna 172 takes off from Montgomery Field at 8.16 a.m., heads west, flies over the Pacific Beach community, then it turns to the south and flies over the Pacific Ocean and coastline for a little bit before turning to the southeast over the Ocean Beach neighborhood to head towards Lindbergh Airport. The Cessna makes one missed approach towards runway 9 at Lindbergh Airport and then makes a 180-degree turn to fly back out over the Ocean Beach community again where it plans to curl around and start another, a second missed approach at Lindbergh. So while the Cessna is flying practice ILS approaches in the airspace around Lindbergh Airport, at 8.53 a.m., 19 minutes after taking off from LAX, Flight 182 contacts San Diego Approach Control Facility, located nine miles to the north of Lindbergh Airport, to notify them that Flight 182 is currently at 11,000 feet. San Diego Approach acknowledges the message and gives clearance to Flight 182 to descend to 7,000 feet. At 8.57 a.m., First Officer Fox radios over, Approach, PSA 182's out of 9.5, descending to 7,000, the airport's in sight. Approach Control radios back, PSA 182's cleared, visual approach, runway 27. First Officer Fox acknowledges the message and says, Thank you, cleared visual approach 27. While First Officer Fox is communicating with San Diego Approach Control, 
In the background, the off-duty captain seated in the jump seat is having a casual conversation with Captain McFerrin about financial matters and insurance that aren't really relevant to the flight. Carries on for a few minutes, and I'm sure these pilots see it as harmless because, after all, they're flying the same simple route from Los Angeles to San Diego that they've flown hundreds of times before. Flight engineer Wayne is on the company radio, communicating the inventory needs of the plane for its turnaround. He's requesting more coffee, soda, napkins, swizzle sticks, among other things. Flight engineer Wayne also informs company radio that the forward baggage compartment seal needs to be repaired, so he wants a mechanic to meet the plane when it arrives at the gate. While all three of these conversations are in progress in the cockpit of Flight 182, at the same time, at 8.57 a.m., our Cessna 172 is ending its second missed approach at Lindbergh Airport and is climbing in altitude to the northeast. Approach control radios PSA 766 Traffic will be a Cessna 172 just making a low approach off of runway 9, uh, northeast bound. Contact Limburg Tower now, 133.3. Have a nice day. So this message was for a different plane in the area, not directed towards PSA 182, but the crew of Flight 182 could hear it. And this is the first opportunity for the pilots in the cockpit of PSA 182 to learn that there's a Cessna in the sky climbing towards the northeast above Lindbergh. First Officer Fox, slightly confused and maybe distracted by the conversation in the cockpit, asks over the radio, Sir, was that PSA 182? Approach tells him that it was for the company and not for Flight 182. At 8.58 a.m., Flight Engineer Wayne radios over a position report to ARINC, telling them that they left Los Angeles and that Flight 182 is expecting to land at Lindbergh in seven minutes at 9.05 a.m. First Officer Fox and Captain McFerrin go through their approach checklist, and the off-duty pilot, Captain Nelson, playfully asks, are we there yet? A minute later at 8.59 a.m., 25 minutes after taking off from LAX, Flight Engineer Wayne says, just gave my off report to ARINC, and the guy started laughing, said so I'm a little late. Captain McFerrin responds, go ahead and give the off report from LA to San Diego then and the sound of laughter fills the cockpit. Flight engineer Wayne adds, He really broke up laughing. I said, so I'm a little late. While the flight engineer is relaying this story, San Diego approach radios over, PSA 182, traffic 12 o'clock, one mile northbound. Captain McFerrin responds, we're looking. A few seconds later, approach radios again, PSA 182, Additional traffic's uh, 12 o'clock, three miles just north of the field, northeast bound, a Cessna 172, climbing VFR, visual flight rules, out of 1,400. First Officer Fox says, okay, we got that other 12. At this point, while the pilots are looking for the Cessna, the off-duty pilot in the cockpit starts relaying another story about how he's flying out of San Francisco the other day and accidentally radioed Oakland Tower thinking it was Bay Approach. A woman told him that he was mixed up, and he apologizes initially, and then jokes with her and said, in a way, I'm not sorry, which made her laugh. The pilots in the cockpit of Flight 182 laugh at this story as well. Still at 8.59 a.m., while the off-duty pilot, Captain Nelson, is telling this story, the Cessna radios over to San Diego Approach, 7711 Gulf, 1500 uh, northeast bound. 
San Diego approach responds, and this communication from approach to the Cessna can be heard on flight 182 as well. Cessna 7711 Golf, San Diego departure radar contact, maintain VFR conditions at or below 3,500, fly heading 070, vector final approach course. So the Cessna tells approach that it's currently at 1,500 feet and heading to the northeast, and San Diego Approach is telling the Cessna to stay below 3,500 feet and stick to a 070 heading. 15 seconds pass, and the time is now 9 a.m. on the button. San Diego Approach radios, PSA 182, traffic's at 12 o'clock, three miles out of 1,700. Looking out his forward windscreen, First Officer Fox spots a plane in the sky ahead and says, got him. Captain McFerrin responds to San Diego Approach with traffic in sight. San Diego Approach then radios, Okay, sir, maintain visual separation. Contact Lindbergh Tower 133.3. Have a nice day now. Captain McFerrin says, Okay. So Approach warns Flight 182 of traffic directly ahead of them. The pilots tell them that they see the plane, and Approach tells Flight 182 to maintain a visual on the traffic, stay clear of it, and to contact Lindbergh Tower for future communications, Approach says goodbye. A few seconds later, Approach radios over to Casey Jr. and Boswell in the Cessna 172, Cessna 11 Gulf, and traffic's at 6 o'clock, 2 miles eastbound, PSA jet inbound to Lindbergh, out of 3,200, has you in sight. The Cessna acknowledges this message. So Approach is telling the Cessna pilots that there's a PSA jet directly behind them, at 3,200 feet, but the PSA pilots see the Cessna and are aware of its presence. At the same moment, while San Diego Approach is talking with the Cessna, Flight 182 reaches out to the Lindbergh Tower for the first time, and the tower responds, PSA 182, Lindbergh Tower, uh, traffic 12 o'clock, one mile, a Cessna. First Officer Fox calls for flaps five, and Captain McFerrin asks his first officer, is that the one we're looking at? First Officer Fox responds, Yeah, but I don't see him now. Both pilots are scanning the skies through their windscreen and don't see the traffic that the tower is referring to. Around this moment, the Cessna 172 slightly deviates from its assigned heading of 070, turning slightly to the right and flying on a 090 heading, still climbing and currently passing through 1,900 feet. Captain McFerrin radios to the tower, Okay, we had it there a minute ago. The tower responds, 182, Roger. Captain McFerrin then says, I think he's passed off to our right. There is some temporary radio static during this message that made the tower controller hear, I think he's passing off to our right instead of passed. The tower says, yeah. And Captain McFerrin says to his first officer, he was right over here a minute ago. Lindbergh Tower then asks Flight 182, how far they're going to fly downwind before turning towards the airport to land. The tower has another PSA flight, Flight 207, that is taxiing and getting in position for takeoff. The tower tells Flight 207 to get in position and hold. Then at 9.01 a.m., the tower radios to Flight 182. PSA 182 cleared to land. Captain McFerrin acknowledges this message with, 182's cleared to land, and the Boeing 727 descends below 3,100 feet. Three seconds later, First Officer Fox asks his co-workers in the cockpit, Are we clear of that Cessna? Flight Engineer Wayne says, Supposed to be. 
Captain McFerrin says, I guess. And briefly, the sound of laughter is heard in the cockpit. The off-duty pilot in the jump seat, Captain Nelson, adds to the chorus of uncertain replies with, I hope. Then Captain McFerrin steps in and reassures everyone by saying, Oh yeah, before we turned down wind, I saw him about one o'clock, probably behind us now. Seven seconds after this comment by Captain McFerrin, at San Diego Approach, a controller gets a collision alert warning concerning Flight 182 and the Cessna 172. This conflict alert system was relatively new to the controller. It was implemented into the San Diego Approach control system on August 7, 1978, so it only had been around for the previous seven weeks. During that period of time, controllers received on average 13 conflict alerts per day, so controllers were used to getting them all day long. It wasn't really seen as an emergency message. It was interpreted more as a nuisance, this thing that just keeps on going off all day that's a little too sensitive. The controller also reflected on the fact that Flight 182 just told him that they had the Cessna in sight. So he told his boss, the coordinator, about the alert, and both of them agreed that since Flight 182 confirmed that they had the traffic in sight, that approach control didn't have to radio to the Cessna or tower about the alert. A few seconds after this alert goes off, First Officer Fox calls for the landing gear to be dropped. First Officer Fox says to his captain, there's one underneath. I was looking at that inbound there. A few seconds pass. Flight 182 continues its descent through 2,700 feet. The weather is clear in San Diego, and Flight 182 is flying over the North Park neighborhood, just starting a slight right turn to line up with runway 27 at Lindbergh Airport. Suddenly, the calm in the cockpit is interrupted when Captain McFerrin exclaims, Whoop! First Officer Fox screams, Ah! At 9.01 a.m. and 47 seconds, PSA Flight 182, as it's descending down through 2,600 feet, slams into the back of the Cessna 172 at around 160 knots. The pilots in the Cessna, both Boswell and Casey Jr., are killed instantly as the right wing of the Boeing 727 slices through the smaller plane, causing the Cessna to break apart and explode. The impact damages the right wing of the 727, the right wing's flaps and control services are demolished, and the plane's hydraulic systems may have been affected as well. Ground witnesses said a vapor-like trail was spewing out of the right wing as the 727 started to fall towards the earth, and the right wing caught on fire. Shortly after impact, Captain McFerrin pleads, Easy, baby, easy, baby. And then he asks his first officer, What have we got here? First officer Fox says, It's bad. Captain McFerrin utters, Huh? First officer Fox shouts, We're hit, man. We are hit. Flight 182 increases its right bank, and the fire on the right wing grows more intense as the plane drops closer to the earth. Captain McFerrin radios, Tower, we're going down. This is PSA. And the tower responds, Okay, we'll call the equipment for you. A stall warning sounds off in the cockpit. Captain McFerrin shouts, This is it, baby. As Flight 182 plummets further towards the ground, with the right bank angle and the downward pitch angle of the plane increasing as it falls, Captain McFerrin says, brace yourselves. An unidentified voice in the cockpit says, hey, baby. And another voice says, ma, I love ya. Two and a half seconds later, at 9.02 a.m. and seven seconds, PSA Flight 182 crashes into the ground in a residential neighborhood near to the intersection of Dwight and Nile Streets in the North Park neighborhood of San Diego. 
The 727 was flying at over 300 miles per hour on impact in a 50 degree right bank with the nose of the aircraft pointed downwards. A massive black mushroom cloud rose in the sky over San Diego shortly after 9 a.m. on September 25th, 1978. All 135 human beings on board Flight 182 were killed instantly in the crash. 22 homes were either completely destroyed or partially damaged due to the resulting fires. Seven residents that were on the ground died, and nine more sustained injury. The scene of the crash was described by investigators and emergency responders as quite gruesome. Passenger seats from the 727 were stuck in the sides of houses. The plane hit the ground with such speed that only four bodies were recovered from the scene intact. Thousands of gallons of jet fuel ignited upon impact, destroying much of the fuselage and a number of homes. Only 20 seconds elapsed between the 727 colliding with the Cessna at around 2,600 feet and the impact with the ground close to the intersection of Dwight and Nile and North Park. The Cessna broke apart in the sky upon impact with the 727, and the pieces of the plane dropped nearly straight down out of the sky, with the largest piece of the Cessna landing at 32nd Street and Polk Avenue. With the 135 on board Flight 182, the two pilots in the Cessna, and the seven residents on the ground that were killed, a total of 144 human beings lost their lives on that Monday morning in late September 1978. At the time in 1978, this incident was the worst aviation accident in U.S. commercial aviation history. So the big question stemming from this incident was, why didn't the crew of Flight 182 see the Cessna in front of them and take corrective action to avoid it? Well, investigators performed a cockpit visibility study to see where the Cessna would have been in the captain's and first officer's windscreens for the last 170 seconds of the flight prior to the midair collision. The study used the seat positioning expected of a pilot that is positioning their seat using the design eye reference point located between the two forward windscreens. What they found was that the Cessna should have been in the middle of the pilot's windscreens from 170 to 90 seconds prior to the impact and in the lower section of the windscreen for the remaining time, just above the windshield wipers. One thing that caught investigators' attention, though, was that when they brought in pilots and asked them to situate their seat as they typically would for a flight, a number of pilots would move their seats lower and further back to get a better look at their instrument panel. So they thought maybe this hindered visibility to a degree. Maybe if the pilots on Flight 182 had their seats lower or positioned further back than investigators expected, those final 80 seconds where the Cessna should have been in the lower section of the windscreen, maybe the Cessna was below the windscreen and therefore the pilots couldn't see it. Another thing to consider is that for the final 60 seconds or so before the midair collision, the Cessna and the 727 were flying the same heading, 090. The Cessna was told to fly a 070 heading, and the pilot slightly deviated from this course and flew a 090 heading, the same as Flight 182. If you think about it like driving in your car down a road, let's say you're going directly north, staring straight ahead out of your windshield, if a car were to cross the road a half a mile ahead of you, traveling east to west while you're going north, you're probably easily going to spot it. It would go across your field of vision, and it would catch your eye because it would be moving across your sight line against the background and it would stand out. 
Well, if you're on a very straight black asphalt road and directly ahead of you is a black car that's traveling in the same direction as you, yes, you might spot it, but it might be a bit harder to locate since it's not moving around against a different colored background. It's not crossing your field of vision or standing out. It's just stationary. This blends in with another theory. The Cessna was largely yellow colored. As Flight 182 is descending in altitude above San Diego, guess what comprises the background of the ground below? A bunch of yellowish homes in the residential neighborhoods of San Diego. So in the cockpit of Flight 182, these pilots might have been with their seats slightly back so they can get a better look at their instrument panel. But this comes at the cost of not being able to see that well at what's in the lower portion of their windscreen over the glare shield and below the nose of the plane. They're told by air traffic control that there's traffic ahead of them. When they look at the windscreen, they can't easily locate this traffic because it's a yellow Cessna that's flying over a backdrop of yellow colored homes. It's camouflaged. Also, it isn't moving around in an eye-catching manner because the Cessna is flying the exact same heading as they are. It's not crossing their line of sight and easy to detect, it's fixed. It's also 9 a.m and they're heading east, and it's probably not that easy to see through the bright sunshine coming from the east. They're descending, and the camouflage Cessna's ascending from below. All this adds up to the pilots of Flight 182 being unable to visually locate the Cessna. Another thing to consider is 26 seconds before the collision, Captain McFerrin says, before we turn down wind, I saw him at one o'clock, probably behind us now. This comment does two things. First, it's given rise to the idea that there may have been a third plane in the area that morning, and when approach control and the tower were warning Flight 182 about air traffic, maybe Captain McFerrin saw a third plane in the sky that he thought was the plane that he had to worry about. When it flew away from Flight 182, he thought there wasn't any more traffic to be worried about. The surrounding airspace in San Diego is notoriously busy, So maybe there was a third plane in the sky that morning and it caused confusion in the cockpit of Flight 182. Secondly, when Captain McFerrin says, I saw him about one o'clock, probably behind us now, he's indirectly telling his co-worker, First Officer Fox, that they don't have to be on the lookout for any more traffic. He saw the plane that Control told them to be cautious of. He said it's probably behind them now and they can let their guard down. Another major factor in this accident were poor assumptions made by both sides in the cockpit of Flight 182 and Approach Control in Lindbergh Tower. 19 seconds before impact, Approach Control received a collision alert warning and failed to pass along the message to Lindbergh Tower or the Cessna. At the moment of impact, Approach did try to reach out to the Cessna by radioing Cessna 11 Gulf uh, traffic uh, in your vicinity. A PSA jet has you in sight. He's descending for Lindbergh. But this was sent while the collision was taking place. It was too late for the pilots to do anything about it. Approach and Lindbergh Tower assumed that Flight 182 had the Cessna in sight all along and failed to use their radar and resources to ensure separation between the two aircraft. On the other hand, the pilots of Flight 182 failed to notify Approach or the tower in a clear manner that they had lost sight of the Cessna after being repeatedly warned about the traffic. But you could argue that when the tower gives Flight 182 clearance to land, understandably, the pilots probably thought to themselves, hey, they wouldn't be giving us clearance to land if there was danger lurking ahead of us. If traffic was still in our path, we wouldn't be cleared to land. 
In the tower, they have radar and would notify us if any other planes were in our path. The NTSB released its report on PSA Flight 182 on April 19, 1979. For the probable cause section, it was stated, the NTSB determines that the probable cause of the accident was the failure of the flight crew of Flight 182 to comply with the provisions of a maintained visual separation clearance, including the requirement to inform the controller when they no longer had the other aircraft in sight. Then it goes on to say, contributing to the accident were the air traffic control procedures in effect, which authorized the controllers to use visual separation procedures to separate two aircraft on potentially conflicting tracks when the capability was available to provide either lateral or vertical separation to either aircraft. So initially, the majority of the investigators found that the choices of the crew of Flight 182 was the probable cause of the crash and only referred to the air traffic control choices as a contributing factor, which has less weight. NTSB member Francis McAdams wrote a dissenting opinion in the report, criticizing the majority for laying blame solely on the crew of Flight 182. McAdams thought that the air traffic control procedures should have been listed as a probable cause as well, not just a contributing factor. He said that the unplanned heading change by the Cessna that wasn't reported to controllers should have been a contributing factor and not just a finding. McAdams hit on another couple areas too as contributing factors, improper resolution to the collision alerts received by controllers, failure by the controllers to restrict Flight 182 to 4,000 feet and above until they cleared Montgomery Field traffic, failure by controllers to alert Flight 182 to the direction of the Cessna, the unplanned heading change by the Cessna, and the possible misidentification of a third plane in the area by Flight 182. On August 11, 1982, the report was amended, and a number of McAdams' conclusions were included in the official report's probable cause. Now the air traffic control procedures section that was originally listed as a contributing factor is listed as a probable cause. The report also included as contributing factors to the crash the failure of the controllers to tell Flight 182 the direction of the Cessna, the improper resolution of the collision alert warning, and the failure of the Cessna pilot to maintain a proper heading. So how did the crash of PSA Flight 182 make flying safer for us today? Well, PSA Flight 182 was the worst airplane disaster in U.S. history at the time. Several changes were implemented to try and prevent future accidents. First off, the Cessna was only flying above the busy Lindbergh Airport because it was the only airport in the surrounding area that had instrument landing system. Because of the crash of Flight 182, the FAA realized it was a bad idea to have small planes frequently sharing airspace with larger commercial air traffic. An instrument landing system was quickly installed at Montgomery Field and at McClellan Palomar Airport, so smaller planes and training pilots could learn at these surrounding airports and not occupy the busy airspace near downtown San Diego. Secondly, and this is probably the most important safety development from this accident, the aviation world was freshly reminded of the danger that planes pose to one another in the skies. This crash quickened the development of technologies to help planes be more aware of each other and prevent future mid-air collisions. Some of you might remember that we learned about this in the Uberlingen episode, but TCAS, the Traffic Collision Avoidance System, was developed shortly after the crash of Flight 182 in the early 1980s. TCAS aids planes in locating one another, 
gives directions to planes to keep separation. If it's determined that the planes might be on a collision course and, you know, possibly a danger to one another. Next, regulations were put into place to restrict cockpit conversations below 10,000 feet. This crash provided an important lesson that is taught in flight schools about how it's important to stay focused on the job, especially when flying in lower altitudes. You need everyone in the cockpit to be fully alert and not distracted by unrelated casual conversation that doesn't have to do with flying the plane. Fourth, a Class B airspace was set up around Lindbergh Airport and other major airports across the country. This put restrictions in place on who could fly in this airspace, and planes were guided by positive radar control instead of using see and avoid procedures. Smaller planes were banned from flying blind instrument landing approaches to airports in Class B airspace. Control procedures around busy airports nationwide were reviewed as well. Now, even when aircraft are operating under visual flight rules, controllers are required to maintain radar separation between aircraft. So as painful and as tragic as the crash of Flight 182 is, this crash spawned a number of safety improvements that have prevented future accidents and made flying safer for all of us today. Now it's time for our chat with Mary Frances Riley. Today on PCPC, we're happy to have on the show a former flight attendant for Pacific Southwest Airlines, the secretary for the PSA Historic Memorial Committee, She's someone that's absorbed how the crash of Flight 182 has affected the PSA and San Diego community. Let's welcome Mary Frances Riley. Mary, how's 2020 treating you? 2020 is going as as good as it can, I guess, under the circumstances. Yeah, I feel like we're all in the same boat just trying to weather the storm. Oh, yeah, yeah, but it it could be worse. That's the way I look at it. It could be worse. That's a good attitude to have. So Uh when did you first decide that you were going to be a flight attendant? Was this something that you felt destined to do your whole life? Did you always have an interest in aviation? No, it never even crossed my mind. Um, The only time I had been on an airplane was when my family had relocated from um, New York, the Bronx, into uh, California. And they scared me. And I thought they went way too high unnecessarily. Yeah. And it made me throw up. (laughs) And I didn't like it at all, but I was intrigued by the flight attendants. But I just remember that. One of them complimented my outfit. I thought I was the Queen of Sheba. Nice. So that was it. That was it. And then I was in college, not um, devoting myself to the task. And my father's best friend, my father's name was Harry Riley. And he and a guy named Bill Rivers worked in management for the telephone company. And Bill was putting in, I think it was called the Centrex system for PSA. And um, he knew I was not really enjoying the college experience. So he suggested that he knew some people in reservations and he suggested that I apply for a job at PSA in reservations. Mm -hmm. When you turned in your application, after six months, if you didn't hear from them, you had to turn in it again because they would purge their files. So after, so I, I turned in the application for reservation, but during that six month period, I started to think about it. And I thought if I was going to do um, a job for an airline, I would rather be a stewardess, quote unquote. Mm-hmm. Um, but my mother said no. <laughs> my mother was the boss of all of us. Yeah. Was she so, afraid of, uh, why didn't she want you to be a stewardess? She said she couldn't trust me on the ground. She wasn't going to put me in the air anywhere, which wasn't <laughs> true. I was a good kid, but that's how she controlled, you know. Yeah. <laughs> she was an Italian mother. Yeah. <laughs> She's the best. She's the best. So anyway, so six months later, she's, my mother started nagging me about going down and, and turning in a new application. 
And I remember sitting in the parking lot in my little Triumph TR6. I had my my little pink dress on that I had made in whole neck <laughs> uh-huh. with the invisible zipper. And I had that application on my lap and everything was filled out except for position. And I didn't want to write reservations. And I knew I would they, they would kill me <laughs> yeah. if I wrote stewardess. But after about 45 minutes of sweating in that car, I wrote down stewardess. I turned it in. And all I remember about that night is sitting at the dinner table. We always had dinner together as a family. And my mother asked me if I had turned it in. And I said, yeah. And I remember saying, but you know what, Mom? And my father was sitting there. Um, but you know what, Mom? I, I kind of turned it in for stewardess. Oh. <laughs> I don't know if she knocked me out. <laughs> I don't know <laughs> what happened. But... I don't remember anything past that. And then when she saw me studying, for it was a lot different than I had anticipated. And when she saw me studying my little, um, you know, fanny off, she, um, she she was waiting on me. She was bringing me drinks. She, you know, making sure everything was quiet for me. Yeah. And I think she was really proud after that. Yeah, she was probably impressed that you uh, were so interested in it and studying so hard. Well, and I think she, you know, I was a social butterfly, you know, I liked cheerleading and social activities. I was not a student. Yeah. And, um, and I think she was glad that, that I had a direction. Mm-hmm. And then at graduation, I got a, a, a an award that the teachers gave out. It was called Class Ham. Mm-hmm. And they handed you a ham in a, in a tin with a, a, a pink bow around it. It was a very complimentary introduction to it. Mm-hmm. Um, but it was funny, you know, and, and my mother, I sat down next to my mother after I received it. And she said, I always knew you'd make me proud. <laughs> <laughs> and you did. You did make oh, yeah, her I proud. Did, yes. um, oh, let me tell you. What was it like working for PSA? Did you enjoy the flight attendant lifestyle? What was a typical work day like? In the beginning, we were only flying inside California. It was an intrastate airline. Mm-hmm. So um, we would do six flights the first day. And then the second day, um, you were home by nine o'clock in the morning every time. Mm-hmm. That's not too bad. So that when when the PSA crashed, the flight one eighty two crashed, it was returning. That's why there were so many employees on it because they were all deadheading. Yeah, and not working the flight from L.A. to get home because you just did one flight home the next day. That changed. But in the beginning, that's the way it was. What was uh, PSA, the company, like? What, in your mind, separated them from other airlines? What was the culture like there? Pretty girls. Yeah. That was what did it. All <laughs> of, my parents traveled all I was so glad that they took advantage of my passes, but they traveled all over the world. And um, they mentioned PSA, and everybody knew who they were. Everybody. <laughs> it was shocking, because it was a little California airline to begin with. Yeah. And it was never really big. Yeah, what I read was that they were a discount airline, known for being really friendly. It sounds like there was a fun atmosphere on planes. Well, there was, and it was, it was at the time, a commuter airline. There were, when you looked down the aisle and you were giving the PA, you'd see a sea of yellow ties. Mm-hmm. And maybe one female face. <laughs> <laughs> and you had to wear so much makeup. You had to wear stage makeup. False eyelashes. I mean, stage makeup, because the the premise was that they wanted the man in the. Can you imagine getting away with this today? Mm-hmm. The man in the back row to be able to see your face, and you could only do that with stage makeup. So they really ca- catered to the environment they thought men wanted in the seventies, which was pretty girls, cheap short skirts, cheap tickets, short yep. skirts, lots of makeup. That's interesting. Friendly atmosphere, lots of smiling. 
and it was a very successful thing. I, I don't know how Hooters gets away with it, but um, I don't think you could have an airline like that today. But it was it was known for beautiful. The the iconic girl at PSA was a girl named Debbie Debbie Roll, and um, she's still there, and she still looks great. Mm-hmm. And when you ever you pick a, a if you Google PSA, Debbie's picture will come up, a beautiful blonde, mm-hmm. and she's still there. That's amazing. Is yeah. She, um, were you working? When did you start working for PSA? June of seventy four. June of seventy four, and you were working for them in nineteen seventy eight when this when yes, the, the yes. crash of flight one eighty two happened. What do you remember? Yeah. Where were you when you learned about the flight? I'll be honest with you, Michael. There's not much I don't remember. Yeah. Um, but um, I was actually dating somebody for a long time. Oh, it, it turned out to be almost fourteen years. Um, he was, and I, and I had a crush on a guy at work. So I had told um, my boyfriend that I, I wanted the prerogative to see other people, and I left it at that. And um, the other guy that I liked was on the was on the flight. Well, um, my original boyfriend was working up on Texas Street, which is only a few blocks from the crash site, and he knew I usually got off at 9 o'clock in the morning. I told him, this is how I got caught lying. I'll never do it again. Mm-hmm. Um, but I told him that I would be home at nine o'clock in the morning because I didn't want him bugging me the night before. I was coming home the night before. Yeah. And um, so I, I just lied to him and told him I was coming home at nine. So he was on Texas Street and working with his brother. They were plasterers. He owned the company. And he saw a, a PSA approaching at nine o'clock and he said to his brother, look, Jerry, that must be Mary's plane. Oh, man. And he saw everything happen. And he jumped in the car and he went over there and he saw everything. I mean, he got there before emergency crews got there. It's a scarring thing. So he was freaked out and thought you were on the plane. Yeah. Oh, my yeah. God. And I was getting my nails done in El Cajon. Oh. <laughs> Just trying to get some privacy. But how did you find out? Did he call you or did you see it on the news? No, I was getting my nails done. And it's an odd thing. And if I didn't have a witness, I wouldn't even tell you this. But when Gail was doing my nails, it was the porcelain nails. Um, it was a, you know, it was a beautiful day. And absolutely, it was early in the morning. I, I think my appointment started at 8 or 8.30, 8.30. And as she was putting the product on my fingernails, it was crystallizing. Like my hands were freezing. Mm-hmm. And it was crystallizing. And I remember looking at the clock and it was 9 o'clock. Oh, and man. it happened at 9.02. So in retrospect, because um, someone came flying into the nail shop and said, PSA, crash, you know, big drama. And uh, I remember just rolling my eyes and thinking we probably you know, blew a tire on the runway and someone's getting all dramatic. Because we had never had a crash. Yeah. We felt completely safe, you know, completely immune to it. Mm-hmm. And um, no, no cell phone. So I, I went to the desk. I called my mother and told her, you know, I'm not working. And I don't know what's going on, but I'm not working, so I'm going to head home. So she said, okay. I did not know my father was actually working um, and putting the Centrex system in years later um, for PSA. Mm -hmm. So I did not know that. And he was down there. He was at the ticket counter. He saw the the monitor go, see agent, see agent, see agent. And he grabbed somebody, had them drive him on the ramp over to um, the scheduling and one of the schedulers told me like a year later, it's the only reason I even knew my father was there. Like a year later, he said to me, how's Harry? 
Mm-hmm. I said, how do you know Harry? <laughs> I said, my dad? He said, yeah. I said, how do you know him? And he told me the story. And my father had gotten over there. He was standing in a corner in reservations, just watching the chaos. They were trying to figure out who was on it, yeah. who got on it early. You know, there was a flight that left at 825 and 835. A lot of people that were supposed to be on the 835 would get there early and jump on the 825. They didn't know who was on it. Yeah. And um, one crew that they thought was on it came walking up to the crew lounge, and everybody thought they had survived. They didn't even know what had happened. Mm-hmm. So it was a lot of chaos. And um, and then and Terry, the scheduler, saw my dad and said, no, 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 she's not on it. Um, but um, I called my mom. I got in the car. I remember seeing the smoke. That exit is no longer there on the on Highway 94 in San Diego, but um, there was an exit there. I think it was 28th Street or 29th Street, and you could see the huge billow of smoke. By the, I lived in Crown Point. By the time I got to the exit for the beach area, they were saying that there were people lined up to give um, blood, and now they were announcing that you know, there were no survivors. Oh, man. That must have been really hard to be awesome. your age and have – you know, the trauma of any, you know, disaster, even if you didn't know these people, I'm sure it would have affected you just to be so close to it. But to have 37 co-workers and friends just go. It's overwhelming. Yeah. It's over- it, it, I don't ever think I actually comprehended it all, to be honest with you. because And we were such a small company. I mean, when I started my seniority number, I was the third from the bottom mm-hmm. in my class. So my seniority number was 204. That meant there were 206 people. As flight attendants mm-hmm. in San Diego. That's all. Yeah. And we still get together once a year, every year. And I think it's because of this air crash. Mm-hmm. You know, it, it, it bonded us in a way that is, um, you know, you, you, you just can't simulate it. Yeah. It's almost like you guys were in war together. I mean, you guys had this horrible event happen. I'm sure it created an understanding between you two that you can't get from other people, you, an understanding amongst your coworkers that you're all going through this horrible event together. You know, you're very right. I, I remember thinking for the longest time that I would never be able to like even date somebody who didn't have a dog in that fight, who didn't know somebody or have some kind of a knowledge of it mm-hmm. because they would never understand who I was then. Now, you know, and time passes and it does get better, but it will never it, it, it defines you. Yeah, um, just too many people that you know at the same time. And I was twenty five. Oh God, that just is awful. Did when and you're you, watching the pictures. You saw the pictures. Mm-hmm. You see the pictures. You you know that when you're in that airplane, it doesn't matter if you're in the front row, that that wing in the pictures looks like it's really far away. Mm-hmm. But when you're sitting in that front seat, the wing is right outside the window, and you're just looking at flames, and you know you're dying. Yeah. It was 63 seconds. God. What did yeah. what uh, what did you continue working for PSA after the crash? What was Oh it? yeah. I, I retired in 2012. Whoa, so you worked for a long period of time. You worked yeah, for yeah, another 38 38 total years. Um what was it like going, How was it to go back on the uh, plane after the crash? I mean, what was flying like for you um, post flight 182? You know, I, I have to say, I don't really remember. I know I didn't go back right away. Um, I remember going back to my um, my condo um, in Crown Point and Chris, the boyfriend, Christopher and his um, partner and everybody came over to my house and we were trying to figure out who was on it. And we were watching raw footage. You could see body parts hanging from trees. It was raw footage. Ugh. 
Um, it, it was astounding. Uh, something like, I don't remember the numbers, but something like 12 ground agents in San Diego went running up there to see if they could help. You know, they thought they were going to find survivors. Yeah. They, they, you couldn't even comprehend what had happened. And only two were actually physically able to stay. It was so horrific that they were just carried off. Man. And two of them, the two that stayed were Vietnam War vets. Isn't that mm-hmm. interesting? Yeah, the, I guess they had been exposed to something horrible in the past. So exactly, exactly. But that's got to be saying not terrible, a lot. Huh? You, yeah, you imagine that the EMTs have seen everything possible to see. They've been at car accidents, and to see something that upsets them shows you how awful the scene must have been. Well, the um, president of the association that I'm uh, of the um, PSA Flight 182 Historic Memorial Committee. The president is a guy named Rick Colson. He was a, he's a retired police officer. And in all the raw footage, you see him. He's in a, a brown suit, and he's organizing things there. And a woman came up to him um, and, and said – and she was obviously in shock. And she said to him, I can't find my mother. And he said, where did you last see her? And she pointed to, you know, flattened earth. Ugh. Well, I mean, everything was gone. Everything was gone. There was nothing left. Um so, you know, it, it, it was a, a, an extremely traumatic thing. You know, the first, I just remembered something. The first time I went back to work, I was deadheading to L.A. And I was sitting by the window and they were putting um, the cargo on. So I was watching the agents. You know, they were all friends. I'd wave to them out the window, you know. Mm-hmm. Um, and they were putting, it was a very um, sober time. You could feel it in the atmosphere across the city. There was a pall over everything and everybody from the time remembers that and um i'm sitting there and all of a sudden i see hearses pull up and little teeny boxers are being loaded into the cargo pit and my mind went crazy yeah you know at the thought i do remember also calling a a hotline for um emotional support Mm -hmm. you know a psychiatrist or something and i remember calling them and saying that i thought it might be be good for me to talk to somebody and they said well you know we're kind of booked and we don't have um and we certainly want to talk to you um how about like three weeks from now you know was the next appointment oh my god and i said okay and then they started asking me questions and they asked me where i worked and i said um psa and they got me in that minute that's good that's put some clothes on and get down here they said that's what my reaction was when they told you three weeks and be like oh man am i supposed to just write it out for three weeks i'm glad well, you know you're so flipped out you don't even nothing is going in you know what i mean yeah. and i'm dealing with the boyfriend i'm looking for the guy i, I had the crush on mm-hmm. and the boyfriend is sitting in my living room <laughs> yeah so that's how I got caught cheating. <laughs> it is a uh... never did it again, Michael. <laughs> um, from looking at the report, and I'm sure you've seen a lot of the documentaries and stuff. Um, mm-hmm. What was the reaction like in PSA when that first report comes out and they kind of levy all the blame primarily on the PSA crew? Did was everybody pretty upset about that? Yeah, they're very upset. They're still upset about it because um, when they corrected it half half heartedly. It was, you know, page 24. Yeah. Um, now, there's, a, there's a, a captain for PSA. His name is Leo Leonard. And there's a documentary being worked on right now. And they contacted me just because I have a, that page on, um, on Facebook for PSA. And I put them together. After I did some research on them and I, and I asked ahead of time, I went to the pilots lunch. I asked the pilots what they thought. 
And then I got a hold of Leo. Leo turned 100 last November. He's going to be 101 this November. Yeah. And he remembers every single thing about the founding of PSA. He was one of the founders. He financed, he and his wife, Anne, and she's still alive too. Talk about till death do you part, huh? Mm-hmm. Got married at 19. Nice. <laughs> but um, he his his whole focus in life at this point is to clear the names of those pilots. So when I asked him, that's what he wanted to talk about. The the um, documentary people are Brandon and Seth. Mm-hmm. They were so respectful. That, uh, I love them. They, they get it. It sounds like you get this um, operation too, but they got it. Mm-hmm. And then we went over and they um, – I can send you even something. They um, interviewed Leo, and and then they got him um, an article in the San Diego Union clearing the pilots' names too, because it was not pilot error. Those airplanes should that airplane should never have been there. Yeah, from studying the report, studying this crash, I thought everything was kind of pushed. In that first report, said, "Hey, this is all the crew's fault." At least Mick Adams, that one dissenter, st- stood up. But I think there's a lot to be, to me, the biggest thing was that the air traffic control got a collision alert and they basically ignored it. That was the, you know, smoking gun. That was the whole crux of it. But the thing is, you know, they used to get them all the time. I'm sure you read this. They got them all the time. They got like 12 a day. Yeah. Yeah. But instead of just saying we got an alert, we don't know. Mm -hmm. They just passed. That was it. It was timing, if you think about it, because it was right when they got the alarm that they passed them off to Lindbergh Field from Miramar. So it was the timing of it, too. And then he was I I saw a reenactment of it. And because of the way the windscreen is on the in the cockpit. Yeah. I'm sure you saw this reenactment. The the 172, the Cessna you could never see the Cessna because of the way the the airplane was configured. Mm-hmm. So the Cessna came up underneath him. For years, I didn't realize it was a head-on. I thought they came up from the other angle, but he came up head-on. Yeah. I didn't, but underneath. Yeah. I, 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 I've gathered from it, like, that timing issue of hey, there's traffic ahead of you, time for me to send you to the tower, seemed very inopportune. That it yeah. would have been nice if that guy was like, hey, this seems like kind of there's some conflict ahead, so I'll just stay on the line with you while you, you know, I can assure that you guys are going to keep separated from each other. But but that's not the way it worked, though. You know, you have to realize, too, 1978 was a very different time in the airlines. It was like the Wild West. They used to race each other going up the um, the California coast. Um, Air Cal and PSA racing each other up the coast to San Fran. Yeah. It was the Wild West. They were young, hotshot pilots, yeah. and especially PSA. If I remember this correctly, um, an average commercial pilot – needed 1,500 um, multi-engine hours mm-hmm. to qualify for a commercial airline job. Mm-hmm. And in PSA, they didn't even look at you with less than 3,000. Um, um, Pete Pettigrew, um, he's an admiral in the Navy. He was um, a captain of PSA. And he was the technical advisor for Top Gun, the original Top Gun. Um, he shot down a MiG. Two, two of our guys shot down MiGs during the war. Mm-hmm. So they had a lot of hotshot pilots in there. And Jim McFerrin was one of them. Yeah. But he was but Jim had just come back. Do you know this about the around the world tour he took with his family? No. Yeah, he had just come back. I if I remember it correctly, he had left in July and come back in June and the accident happened in September. So he had to go through ground school and all that stuff again. Mm-hmm. They had he bought a as I remember, he bought a ninety four foot brigantine. 
And he and his wife and I think a couple of kids, his wife was a teacher, so she could tutor the kids for the year. I think they had a doctor on board. They had all the things they needed for a round-the-world tour, and that's what they did. Nice. Um, some of the people from the airline met them when they got to Hawaii. And this was the first time, that Flight 182, that's why there were so many guys in the cockpit. Mm-hmm. Because they hadn't seen Jim in so long, that's what they were talking about insurance. Yeah, um, nobody had seen him for a long time. He, you know, they were welcoming him back. That's one thought I had was from reading the CVR that these guys really liked each other. They oh, yeah. enjoyed each other. You could tell from the conversation, and that was one point I was going to make in the show was um, that if they just had a bad relationship, if one of them had a stomach ache, they might have it, it might have tamped down. You know the vibe in the cockpit and it was interesting that you got the feel of these guys it's early in the morning they just had coffee and they love hanging out with each other they loved flying for this airline and the bottom line michael the bottom line was pretty girls once again <laughs> i mean that it's the whole thing that you have to understand the whole thing was pretty girls this story will never be told mm-hmm. because as long as people are, are alive <laughs> yeah and the story will never be told because it was crazy. We were we were young people in uh, in uh, traveling, especially once we got to U.S. Air. It was a whole different ball game. But now all of a sudden, these little PSA flight attendants used to go into Fresno for an overnight. Mm-hmm. All of a sudden, we're walking around the streets of Paris, looking at each other like, "How did this happen?" <laughs> <laughs> um, I would see more people in Europe than I saw in my own neighborhood that I knew. That sounds fun. Did you have a uh, destination that you loved going to throughout your entire career? Was there some place that you were like, "Yes, I get to go there"? Well, uh, I think it just depended on what I wanted to do. Yeah. When we started going to Europe, um, you know, when we were still local, but we were still. Um, it, it 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 was all about who you flew with. Yeah, I don't care what city you went to. At just the time you didn't even remember. Just as long as you had cool, cool co-workers and cool passengers to talk to. Oh yeah, you'd look at the lineup and you go, "Oh, I'm flying with. Oh, I'm flying with." <laughs> and then I know that um, one of the one of the uh, the um, pilot instructors stood in front of a new pilot class, looked at them all, and said, "This is a famous thing," <laughs> and said, "Gentlemen." You have just made the best decisions of your life. <laughs> <laughs> I want somebody to say that to me someday. <laughs> oh, absolutely. Well, see, I was right out of the Bronx. You have to understand. <laughs> Airplanes made me throw up. I was yeah. right out of the Bronx. I walked into that first class. Well, first of all, a friend of mine, um, Mike Olson, his girlfriend had applied for PSA. She's a beautiful girl. And I didn't know what PSA was. I didn't know anything about it once I had got um, the interview scheduled. And he told me – it was a, a group interview. And he told me, you need to get down there early. There are thousands of people down there, Mary. And the interview was at the um, Islandia, which was a, a hotel owned by PSA because at the time they had tried to expand into car rentals and hotels. Mm-hmm. So that was their hotel. And it was the end. I don't remember what um, floor it was on, but it was at the end of a hallway and they had chairs lying down the hallway outside of the room and an envelope on the um, door. So I had gotten there. I was supposed to be there between one and five. And I had gotten there at 1130 and I and I brought a book. (laughs) I got up there and the place was deserted. I expected thousands of people. Yeah. So I went up to to the door and it said, please get your application. 
from the envelope and mine wasn't there. So I sat down and I started reading and Bonnie Crow, who I know now, but she came out and she said to me, you know, here for the interview, blah, blah, blah. She went back in. I said, you know, I'm here early. Uh, don't worry about me. You know, I just didn't want to get caught in a crowd. Mm-hmm. So then she came back out and she said, well, did you look for your um, application at least? I said, well, I did, but um, it's not there. Yeah. So she went back in and she came out and she was a little embarrassed. And she had the application open. It was like in three parts, you know, so you opened it up. And and, um, she said, well, you know what? You're here and I'm here. So if you want, I'll just interview you now. And I think it's the only reason I got the job because I don't think I would have survived a um, group interview. Yeah. Instead, you had that um, um, one-on-one charm and you just got to – you made the most of your opportunity in that moment. Well, I tripped over the bedspread. I don't know what the heck. <laughs> um, <laughs> they wanted you to walk across the room. And then there were four. There were three more interviews. The second and third one was scheduled. They were back-to-back on the same day mm-hmm. um, in adjoining hotel rooms. It was funny. I thought the first girl was prepping me for the interview, and the first girl was an interview. Oh, yeah. That was um, Carol Hill. And then, um, and then I went to the third interview, and then it was the guy – that was the head of the flight attendant department was a guy named Dean Hawking. Mm -hmm. And I went to see him. And once again, I just lucked out. Um, You know, I was a very naive kid. You know, I wasn't allowed to move out. Mm -hmm. (laughs) (laughs) And and I listened to that. (laughs) So um, he asked me if I had ever been away from home. And I said, oh, yeah. And he said, I said, oh, I don't know, two, three days. (laughs) (laughs) He says to me, well, do you think you'd be – terribly heartbroken if you had to you know move out of state in my heart i'm thinking oh god please make me move out of state my mother won't let me leave unless you do that (laughs) and i said no but they were waiting for the um delivery of the um l-1011 that's why we were hired we were the first class trained on the l-1011 nice it was a big huge yeah it was a beautiful airplane but it made no sense and um so so that's why we were hired and there was a lot going on because there was a a delay in the delivery and you know they were trying to um schedule these classes and getting people hired so he kept being distracted and he just kept apologizing to me i didn't care where was i going yeah (laughs) and um and then they called me the day that they they were going to call me the next day um, uh, after nine and my sister was going in for a biopsy and I was upset because I, you know, I had to stay home and wait for the phone call and I couldn't be there with my family for that. Um, but, um, they called me and she said, well, I'm happy to inform you that, um, you know, you're going to start class on June 17th. Nice. And I started crying because I was just so stressed and I said, that's the you best did news it. I've had all day. <laughs> and she says, Mary, it's only nine o'clock. <laughs> <laughs> what other news have you gotten? I'll never forget it. <laughs> That's amazing. That's a great yeah, story. It it's also that led to a 38 year career. That's amazing. It did, you know, for something. Well, I, I threw up every takeoff and in every landing for the first six months. And you hit it well? Oh, yeah, because I was afraid they'd fire me. But uh, this is how nice these pilots were, though. I was a brand-new flight attendant, mm-hmm. and I've, I'm, I'm, I'm being trained. It's my observation flight, so I'm with a check stew is what they called them at the time. And, of course, it's very intimidating, and she was very tall. <laughs> and, <laughs> Sandy Griffin. So um, she, she caught on late but she caught on we did six flights that day and i just i was green and um so she told the captain 
and his name was Dale Bradley. We just lost him last year, I think. And um, he immediately cooled down that airplane. He didn't care if everybody in there was freezing. He cooled down the airplane for me. As soon as we got to San Jose, he came to the back. He escorted me out of that airplane. There were no food malls. There's no food anywhere at the time. Yeah. Nothing. And, and he just walked me around that airport just to get me you know, kind of back to normal. He was, I, I loved him till, uh, I'll love him till the day I die. Aww. He was so, so good to me. Sounds like you took and care of you. He did. And here I was afraid they would fire me and they just, and they were just nothing but concerned for me. Yeah. I didn't understand that, you know? Yeah, no, that was amazing. It gave you time just to adjust to that lifestyle and get used to the different experiences your body was going to feel. Well, I, I, you know, I, I just, I have an inner ear problem. I couldn't even go on a swing as a kid. So this whole decision was ridiculous. Mm -hmm. But um, when I ended up um, with a bruised esophagus <laughs> uh. and I had to go to the hospital, a, a friend of mine took me to the hospital and my parents were out of town and um, they told me I had a bruised esophagus. I said, well, how could that happen? And he said, I, I, I don't really know. And I said, well, could it happen from throwing up? Uh, and he said, you'd have to throw up 15 times a day. And you're like, and I've I'm been thinking, doing that. Well, 12 flights, <laughs> take six flights, take off and landing. Um, and he told me to quit. But I wouldn't. And so I, um, we got furloughed right after that. And I thought, God, any um, resistance I've, I've built up is going to be gone. But when I got back, I never got sick again like that. Mm -hmm. And I think that it was the time when they were going from hand flying. Mm-hmm. To computerize flying all the time because they used to hand fly it a lot, you know. Yeah. They were pilots; they 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 really liked it. Um, and so the the yawing of the airplane was a little, you know, it wasn't really noticeable, but it was if you have it in your problem. Yeah. Plus, if you're working, you know, you're not sitting in a chair relaxing. You got to walk back and forth. That's the time that I start to feel a little motion sick myself. Oh, really? I never even thought of that. Yeah, maybe. I don't know. Anytime I get up and I have to go, to, I have motion sickness occasionally. And when I have to go to the oh, bathroom. so you know or, how terrible it is. Yeah, yeah, it's not fun, but it's just kind not of, fun. it's an inherited gene. So there's not much you can do about it. Well, my in my family, my, my father used to think I was faking it for some reason. I don't know why. And there's a very famous story in our family. We were in Jersey with my cousins. And, you know, it was when you piled all the kids in. There were five, six, seven. There were eight kids and four adults in the car. Yeah. <laughs> piled one on the other and i'm sitting right behind the driver my uncle tom and i told him i, I think i'm gonna throw up oh <laughs> no you're fine fine <laughs> I, I think i'm gonna throw up and my mother goes i don't think she's kidding tom and right down his neck oh. they never questioned me again in my family <laughs> yeah <laughs> he had it coming um from what i understand there still isn't a permanent memorial for flight 182 at the intersection of not. dwight and nile what do you know about that what's the resistance to it I'm not really sure because we have collected thousands of signatures supporting this effort that we have proven that the neighborhood wants it. But I think it's a political agenda. Mm -hmm. That's all I can figure. Um, they keep saying that the neighbors don't want it there. Now, I went after somebody on Facebook. He's yes, he's a neighbor, mm -hmm. but he's a 20 year old guy who's renting a, a house there. Yeah. And he's talking about you people come up here. You just want to talk about body parts and. And I went after him, and he disappeared and never came back. I'll tell you, he was <laughs> horrible. He was, but I figured that's my job. If I'm on this committee, I'm not going to allow people to do that. What we did start doing, we, we have a memorial every year, mm -hmm. and it's lovely. Now this year, we're, it's going to, it's not going to be normal, you know. But um, the the president of our association, Rick Colson, 
Um, he has a bunch of and he has access to a bunch of antique cars of the time, mm-hmm. police cars. So we have a whole thing where we start where the airplane came and hit the first building coming off the freeway where the the wing hit. Yeah. So we have a big truck, one of those trucks that you can give speeches from. That's mm-hmm. what Rick brings, and we have you know the mucky mucks give their speeches. The um, everybody's there. The priest that was there at the time, everybody gives their little speeches and we have, um, some flowers. We have a a spray of flowers. It's actually a, um, a wreath. Mm -hmm. Um, and then after all the speeches are done, we quietly take this, um, wreath and we take it over to the corner of Dwight Nile, um, which follows the path of the airplane. Mm-hmm. Okay, and then on that corner we have already written the names of everybody who was killed because they won't give us a permanent memorial, so we write them in chalk every year, mm-hmm. and um and then we have a spray of flowers. We have 144 roses. We pick different ones every year, um, different colors. The PSA colors are actually the most beautiful. It turns out, um, and we have a ceremony where a couple of local um radio um um jocks. Shotgun Kelly and um, Jeff Prescott, and they read the names, and with each name, we put a rose in a base, in a floral base, mm-hmm. and at the end of it, there's a gorgeous spray of roses that honors each person that died, mm-hmm. and then we leave it there for the day, and one of us goes back and gets it that night and drops it off at the hospital. Nice. It sounds like even though you guys don't have a permanent memorial that isn't going to stop you from honoring and remembering the victims that died on flight and 182. And they promised us, Michael, they promised us. They're, see, this is what happened last year, though. I, I've been very, very involved in this, you can well imagine. But um, last year I had a, um, I think I told you I had a kidney transplant. And um, it was kind of a lost year for me, I'll be honest with you. So um, I ended up hospitalized every month from July until um, March. And April was the first month I wasn't hospitalized. Um, I kept getting sepsis because all, all things, everything was going wrong. And I kept getting sepsis. So um, I couldn't make it to, I was in the hospital when the memorial happened. I was just on the phone telling, you know, kind of, because the, the, the two of us were missing and the two of us that knew what was going on, the other two people that were there, the two girls that were there, there are a lot of guys too, but the two girls that were running this um, part of it were also fairly new. So I was on the phone with them and I couldn't be there. And so I've kind of dropped the ball because we haven't met this year because of the COVID thing. We haven't met this year. Yeah. And so we're, we're trying to get together now. I don't know what kind of a memorial we'll have this year. It will not be what it normally is. Yeah. But last year was too bad because um, Brendan and um, Brandon and um, Seth came down uh, and they did drone shots of the memorial um, for the documentary. Mm-hmm. So at least at least they got that, but I wasn't there for that. They sent me pictures of it, but yeah, so well, I missed that. So everybody seems to have dropped the ball. Now you said you spoke to Tyler Renner. Um, yeah, he has not contacted me again, and I'm surprised. What did he say? He, he sent an email just saying that the plaque is in the office and that they're still lacking a place to put it. That the neighbors, no one has volunteered the land that it would be needed to host the plaque. To me, this is like an opportunity for someone to turn their home into a piece of aviation history and also show that they care more about their community than just their themselves, you know? They don't want to remember it. Yeah. See, this is the problem, too, is we originally wanted it would have been the perfect spot, but there's... Have you been up to the crash site? I have not. 
Okay. Well, there's an area, you know, it, it, it takes up a, a fairly large area. Not, well, not really under the circumstances, but the back side of the boundaries, there's a, um, it's a traffic break and it's a triangle and it's, and it's shaped like a wing. And we wanted to put it there. And we had an architectural design, everything. We had a low meandering wall with the names on it. Um, it, it, it was beautiful. But the neighbors complained. There was one neighbor who complained. I don't want my dog walking past a burial site, is what he said yeah. to us. This is how nasty these people are. But I felt my, my heart kind of broke. We were up there um, one day discussing it, a bunch of us. And um, these this woman came up. She was a young woman. She was probably no no older than 22 and she had a little baby in a carriage so she was just starting her life off and this was her first house and they had no idea yeah you know they only have to disclose it for seven years i think a tragedy like that should be forever yeah definitely and so she's living on a and she's living right at ground zero she's living on a burial ground that's that's our whole thing Mm -hmm. Is if this was an Indian burial site, they wouldn't be allowed to build there. But they just rebuilt cheap houses, and they never found Jim McFerrin. Nothing. Mm -hmm. It's a burial site. Yeah. Yeah, it'll be interesting. I mean, obviously, a permanent memorial would mean a lot to a lot of people. So I hope someone volunteers their land soon. But it sounds like the lack of a permanent memorial hasn't stopped you guys from doing what you need to do to honor these people. And now we have a... um, one of the guys that's kind of on the periphery of our group, he, his kids um, are involved in um, the ROP program at their high school. And so that high school, as of um, last year, they're going to send the kids down because we're old and it's hard to <laughs> write those names in chalk yeah. and get up and down. So the kids come down and they did it last year. And then their choir came down and sang the um, the, the um, national anthem for us. So because we have a whole color guard that, that does it too on that day. It's a lovely ceremony. Let me tell you, it's lovely. And we usually get probably close to 75 to a hundred people there. Nice. Well, that's good. A lot of PSA people have never been there. They can't do it. They yeah. can't do it. Well, I hope eventually that we, we get that memorial. Um, but in the meantime, keep it on doing what you're doing. I got the last question for you, which is once this pandemic passes, if life goes back to somewhat normal and you could go somewhere, is there anywhere you're looking forward to going? Somewhere in the Eastern Bloc. I have never been there. I've only, uh, I used to fly back and forth six times a month to um, Western Europe. There we had 22 cities, I think. Mm -hmm. But I've never been to like um, Budapest or I'd like to go to one of those cities. And I hope to God I haven't seen Rome for the last time because, you know, it's close to my heart. Thanks again for spending time talking to us. It was a pleasure well, to talk to you. Thanks for considering me. I'm, I'm, I'm flattered by um, your desire to speak to me. <laughs> no, you brought us back to the world of PSA, and we definitely got uh, some insights that we didn't previously have. And um, Can it, I just say one thing? Yeah. When I first got to campus, <laughs> I didn't know anything about PSA, and I didn't know their reputation. I just didn't know anything. Mm-hmm. And I walked into that classroom, and I had never seen so many beautiful girls in my life. I thought, what the hell is this place? Well, then years later, I married a childhood sweetheart mm-hmm. back from the Bronx, and we were going to a base closing party. And I said to him, you've got to understand something, Wayne. Let me tell you, you are going to see the most beautiful women you have ever seen in your whole entire life. 
I used to work at CJ Tuckers, and I used to have all those Ford models come in. I said, okay, okay, you know best. I didn't see him for the first hour and a half. <laughs> he, could, he was calling his friends that night, you know, no cell phones. He was calling his friends that night. It was 4 o'clock in the morning in New York, and, and he ran a bunch of bars when he was going to law school as an adult. Mm-hmm. Um, so he was calling them all. He said, Mary, you got to understand something. In New York, the paparazzi would have been there. <laughs> <laughs> That's how dramatic it is. Yeah. The PSA it, girls. And none of them thought they were anything special. Not one of us. I guess that's what they were looking for. Yeah. Because there wasn't an arrogant bone in anybody's body. I'd sit on jump seats and look at these girls' faces and think, oh, my God. <laughs> <laughs> and not not one of us was arrogant. Not one of us saw, us, saw ourselves as that. You know what I mean? Yeah. You guys just had nice personalities and were fun to be around. So that's why A they A lovely were. group of pretty girls. That sounds- Smart, too. A lot of nurses. A lot of, a lot of them leave to be nurses. A lot of flight attendants. Interesting. Well, Same lifestyle. Well, Mary Frances, thanks again for chatting today, and I'll uh, stay in touch with you, and I hope you hang in there in 2020 and keep a positive mindset and have a good year, and uh, it was pleasure. it was a pleasure talking to you. On behalf of PSA, we appreciate it, Michael. Thanks, Mary Frances. Take care. Bye. Bye-bye. Thanks again to Mary Frances for speaking with us on the show. It's very kind of her to join us, and she's uh, lived a really interesting life. She didn't let this tragedy slow her down or stop her from living life to the fullest. It was inspiring to hear about how she overcame her fears of flying. And even though she initially had motion sickness in the beginning of her career, she just pushed ahead and her body acclimated. She's done what she wanted to do with her life, had a long, successful 38-year career in the skies, and we wish her the best of luck from here on out. Yeah, thanks so much, Mary. That was really great. Yeah. So, Tess, what did you think of the story of PSA Flight 182? Did anything jump out at you? Yeah, I mean, wow, this is such a horrifying crash. And I'd actually heard about this one before we planned to cover it. Um, The thing that really strikes me about it just from the get-go is that this happened, that this Cessna was even allowed to be in such congested airspace to begin with. I mean, I know it was a long time ago, but to me, it's kind of like having a rowboat in a shipping lane or something. Yeah. Just shouldn't be there. Totally. I think it just was something that hadn't happened and you kind of just needed an accident to get everybody's attention. Right. And it was also just highly improbable. So many things had to go perfectly wrong. And uh, I I get where you're coming from when we look at it today. You know, a busy airspace above an airport and a small plane there. But at 1978, 42 years ago, I just don't think they had the significant accident to get everybody's attention. Right. Yeah. At the time, there hadn't been that many midair collisions in the U.S., yeah. right? Yeah, definitely. So I'm sure it wasn't really on people's radar as a possible threat. Another thing that really struck me as you were telling this story was just the lack of clear communication around where the Cessna actually was. The pilots were kind of assuming that air traffic control would warn them if there was a problem and they were cleared to land while air traffic control assumed that the pilots had the Cessna in sight. Yeah. And it just created this perfect storm. Yeah. It seemed like they had good communication, you know, maybe a two or three minute window before the impact, but just in that last 60 seconds, the guys in flight 182 didn't see the Cessna and air traffic control was like, Hey, he said he saw it earlier. So he must still have it in sight. There just wasn't 
a lot of clarity there. To me, the most iconic aspect of this crash to me was that last moment on the CVR when someone says, Ma, I love you. I mean, a lot of every documentary, every article you see online is all about who's to blame for this crash. But in that moment, just when a man is saying his last words on planet Earth and his words are, Ma, I love you, I feel like we all just you know, have our heart tugged at that moment. Yeah, I know. I thought that was really, really heartbreaking too. I feel like it just humanizes the moment and we all, you know, want to say goodbye to our loved ones in our last moment and just that that guy realized what was going on and got to say, Ma, I love you. It's a very sad moment. I wish this crash had never happened, but at least that pilot was able to say goodbye. Another thing I wanted to go back to really quickly were the air collision warnings that went off that were ignored by air traffic control. Yeah. Kind of made me think of uh, when a home security system goes off so much that you start to ignore it. Yeah, that's a good analogy. Um, Yeah, and it's just, it feels like you shouldn't ever be in a position as an air traffic control person where you start ignoring an alert. I feel like how would any of us react if we were at home and, you know, alarms went off 13 times a day? Eventually, we would start to think it was just business as usual. Yeah. So I don't think uh, you can understand. To me, that's the biggest opportunity that this crash had to be averted was when that collision alert happened. If that guy, and I'm sure if he wishes he had a crystal ball and knew it was in the future, but I imagine if he would have pounced on that and told the Cessna or told the tower, hey, this is what's going on. I just got this alert. They might have radiated over and said, we have a collision alert. And that would have got everybody's attention. Exactly. But it sounds like they have a better system today that prevents things like this from happening. Yeah. It's unfortunate that this crash happened, but we did learn some valuable lessons that have made flying safer. But as we've uh, learned over the course of the podcast, a lot of these crashes often have many things that just line up perfectly and go wrong for the crash to occur. Many pivotal aspects or moments that add up to an incident. I made a little list of things that jumped out at me. Tess, feel free to interject at any moment. First, something as simple as the color of the Cessna. A yellow Cessna flying over a residential area with yellow homes below through yellow mid-morning sunlight. Maybe if the plane was completely red or blue, it would have contrasted against the background and been easier to spot. Maybe if they were flying over the ocean or flying over green trees below, the plane would have been able to be seen. The color of the Cessna and the color of the ground lined up perfectly to make the plane camouflaged hard to spot. It's kind of an unlucky combination that might have contributed to the crash, huh? Yeah, definitely. I think anyone that's been to San Diego probably can visualize what it would look like from an, you know, an aerial view. It's a very vibrant, colorful place. Very yellow, yes. Yeah. Uh, secondly, I have the slight course change by the Cessna pilot. Investigators said that if the pilot had kept his assigned 070 heading, the planes would have missed each other by a thousand feet. So that was unfortunate. Right. Yeah. Why did they go off of their heading? Maybe he just had that, you know, hood, that training hood, and that just affect his visual. And he, you know, made a mistake. I think it was obviously a mistake he didn't intend to. Uh, third, we have air traffic control received the collision alert, didn't notify either plane in time or Lindbergh Tower that was communicating with both planes about this conflict. Seems like the giant missed opportunity to prevent the crash. Absolutely. Uh, Fourth, air traffic control didn't follow through to make certain that these planes maintained separation. They had radar, 
saw these planes were in close proximity to each other. And yes, they warned the 727 about traffic, but they didn't continuously follow through to ensure that these planes kept apart from one another. Yeah, it feels like they should have been checking in pretty consistently since they were as close as they were. Yeah. Um, Fifth, the casual conversation in the cockpit was distracting. At the time, yes, there were no regulations on cockpit conversation, but there were several times when reading the CVR transcript where air traffic controls talking to the Cessna or Flight 182 about traffic in the sky and a non-pertinent conversations happening in the cockpit and pulling attention away from the task at hand. Also, that moment where the pilots are in the cockpit and are wondering aloud if they're clear of the Cessna and each pilot responds in an unsure fashion with answers like, supposed to be... I guess, I hope. That was another moment, a missed opportunity where one person in the cockpit could have been like, hey, let's radio the tower and make certain of the situation since clearly none of us knows for sure where the traffic is, or at least let's notify the tower that we lost sight of the traffic. Right, yeah. In that moment, they were kind of making some assumptions and assuming the best. Yeah, I think they just, you know, uh, were hoping, they were probably thinking, hey, air traffic control will speak up if it's still there. Right. Another thing I was thinking about, and I mentioned this to Mary Francis in the interview, was how much these pilots really liked each other. I mean, they were sitting there telling stories. They wanted to make each other laugh. It was early in the morning. They probably had some coffee and were talkative. And I, I thought maybe if they just didn't like each other, if one of them had a stomach ache, that might have killed conversation in the cockpit and might have just led to maybe a little more focus out the windscreen. Granted, they couldn't see things. And, you know, this is all just guessing. But it seems like they really enjoyed hanging out with each other. And that led to casual conversation, which might have pulled attention away. Yeah, they seemed like they were genuinely enjoying their jobs. They yeah. Like the mood in the cockpit was very light. And they, they were happy to be at work and happy to be around each other. Yeah. It makes it just more sad because... They loved their jobs. They were doing a good job. They enjoyed hanging out with each other. But it was a good lesson for future pilots. And I thought it was super interesting that you can't have casual conversation under 10,000 feet anymore. That's a pretty great positive change that resulted from this. Mary Francis informed us that it was years after that the sterile cockpit came about. But this was another moment that I think led to that. Mm. The positioning of the pilot's chairs. We don't know exactly how the pilots of Flight 182 had their chairs positioned. But something as simple as having their seat a little bit back might have hindered their ability to see the Cessna for the final 90 seconds. Right, because it's not like they weren't looking for it. They were trying to find it, and for whatever reason, they couldn't. They simply couldn't see it, you know. I don't know how you blame someone for not being able to see something. Right. They were trying to see it, and they couldn't see it. Maybe it was below the nose, below their glare shield. So, Um, Number eight, I have the third aircraft theory. The airspace above San Diego was very busy. Maybe when air traffic control says there's traffic out there, the pilots saw a plane in close proximity and thought that that was the traffic they were worried about. And when they saw it go away from them, they're like, oh, we don't have to worry about anything. Uh, Number nine, in articles online and documentaries on this crash, a lot of emphasis is placed on the comment, I think he's passed or passing off to our right. Yes, I wanted to go back to that too. Yeah, this comment by Captain McFerrin about a minute prior to the collision. Apparently, radio static made the controller here. I think he's passing off to our right, which left the controller with the impression that Flight 182 saw the traffic ahead of them and that the Cessna was moving out of the way. If the controller had heard, I think he passed off to our right, the controller would know this was untrue because he would have seen his radar and maybe he would have spoken up. To me, the word that jumps out in this comment is think, 
Captain McFerrin says, I think he's passed or passing off to our right. I imagine if you're an air traffic controller, you want to hear more concrete, certain language than that. You want to speak in absolute terms. To me, that's a missed opportunity where either way, whether it was passed or passing, the controller could have said, you think or you know. That's a very good point, Michael. I didn't even think about the the language that he was using. I was just more focusing on the confusion between past and passing you and can, that static. Yeah, I think that's what everybody does. And I think there should be attention there. But he no matter what said, I think, and he didn't say, I know. So I think uh, maybe this has encouraged communications to be a little more absolute and uh, have some finality to it and not just guess. Number 10, at 9 a.m. on the button, when traffic is clearly ahead of Flight 182, and Flight 182 is the faster plane headed towards the Cessna, it struck me as strange, and maybe this is just the way it is when you're getting close to an airport, but I thought it was strange that the approach controller was ready to pass the buck at that particular moment. Granted, the pilots of Flight 182 said they saw the traffic, but it seems like there was a conflict that was unresolved. Two airplanes headed towards the same spot in the sky, An approach was like, I'm done, contact the tower, have a nice day. I'm sure in retrospect, you know, whoever was working approach wishes they would have known what was to follow and they probably would have hung out on the phone. It was just a horrible timing. It was a horrible coincidence that this was the moment when that transition had to go from approach to the tower. I agree. And the fact that they did sort of pass the buck and then go on to ignore the collision alert is a little bit concerning. Yeah, but uh, everybody, I'm sure, was trying to do the best they could. And we're not throwing anybody under the bus. It was obviously just a bat. All these are coincidences that added up to the incident. So lastly, the Cessna pilot was training with a hood on. Maybe if he didn't have this hood on, he would have, you know, maintained his assigned heading. And the fact that he deviated and went to the 090 heading instead of the 070 heading definitely helped uh, contribute to this incident. Yeah, just going back to my analogy, my brilliant analogy about the uh, rowboat in the shipping lane, which I'm mm. just going to keep bringing up because I'm so proud of it. Um, you did a great job. It seems like you wouldn't want to be practicing with the hood on in such a highly congested area, right? Yeah, that was the only place that they could practice the ILS approaches at the time. And now we learned that lesson. Now we took steps to prevent that from happening again in the future. So we're not here to pass judgment on anybody, but we understand why things happen the way they are. And luckily we took steps to prevent these kinds of things from being as likely of happening again in the future. Um, one fortunate thing was that the crash happened on a weekday at 9 a.m. when many residents had left for work or school already. If this had happened on a weekend night, many more on the ground would have probably been killed. There are two stunning photographs of Flight 182 falling to the earth with its right wing ablaze taken by Hans Went that you can see online. Hans Wendt was a photographer for the county of San Diego. That morning, September 25th, 1978, he was covering an event at a gas station in North Park. Apparently, the gas station had just updated its gas nozzles, nozzles that were better at vapor recovery, just more eco-friendly. And Wendt was covering the press conference when he heard a loud bang in the skies above. He quickly snapped two pictures and was later a finalist for the Pulitzer Prize that year for photography. Wentz sold one of his pictures to the San Diego Union for $150. There was a bit of controversy surrounding the photo because he was at the gas station as a county employee. Some argued that the photo should belong to the county, but Wentz paid for the film and processing himself, so he's allowed to keep ownership of the picture. Wentz said that he was pestered by phone calls inquiring about the picture, and one day he went to the mall to take a walk around and take his mind off things. 
In a Sears, while looking at a massive wall of TVs in the electronics department, his picture of the flight popped up on a news broadcast and he was surrounded by the image on a wall of TVs. Went said, most of what I got from taking that picture was pure embarrassment. I felt I couldn't get away from it. I felt trapped. It was all like such a bad dream, a nightmare. I wouldn't want to do it again. Steve Howell, a cameraman from local San Diego channel KNSD39, took a video of the Cessna falling from the sky and the mushroom cloud caused by the crash of Flight 182. The San Diego Evening Tribune won a Pulitzer Prize in 1979 for its coverage of local, general, or spot news reporting in regards to the accident. Another interesting aspect of this crash is that it's another chapter in the story of Jack Rideout. During the Vietnam War, Rideout was on the cusp of being enlisted to go to Vietnam, but a driver ran a red light and slammed into a car that Rideout was driving in. He was declared physically unfit to serve and didn't have to go to Vietnam. In 1977, Rideout and his girlfriend decided to take a nice trip to Europe, where they were going to go on a cruise to Athens. The flight they took to get to Europe was Pan Am Flight 1736. And on March 27, 1977, KLM Flight 4805 slammed into the Pan Am flight that Rideout was on in what would become known as the Tenerife Airport Disaster that we covered in a previous episode. 583 died during that accident, and Rideout was one of 61 that survived. Well, the day before PSA Flight 182, Rideout was in Los Angeles on a business trip, and he was planning to fly back to San Diego on Monday morning, September 25th, 1978, on Flight 182. Rideout was staying with a friend in Los Angeles for the weekend, but his friend didn't have air conditioning, and there was a heat wave in Los Angeles, was a bit miserable, so Rideout gave up his seat on Flight 182 and went home a day early on Sunday, September 24th. So Rideout arguably cheated death three times. Rideout was quoted in the LA Times saying, You can't avoid fate, but for God's sake, don't tempt it. You want to drive 65 on the freeway? Great, but don't tempt fate. You do, you're asking for it. There are a few memorials dedicated to the lives lost on that Monday morning in September 1978. A tree was planted outside the North Park Library in San Diego, and a plaque reads, This tree grows in caring memory of the passengers and community residents who perished in the crash of PSA Flight 182 on September 25, 1978. This tree grows in the spirit of North Park and the residents who rebuilt their community. At the San Diego Aerospace Museum, there's a PSA exhibit, and in that exhibit are two large bronze plaques with the names of victims from the accident. There's been a lot of lobbying to build a memorial at the actual crash site of the 727 at Dwight and Nile Street. I'd like to thank Kim Whittemore for the help in learning more about this accident and the state of the push to get a memorial at the crash site. Apparently at this time, a plaque listing all the victims' names from the crash has been delivered to San Diego Council Member Chris Ward's office, but the plaque is just sitting in the office. Councilmember Ward's Director of Community Outreach, Tyler Renner, emailed us a few days ago and told us that the plaque is basically collecting dust in the office. There hasn't been a homeowner or a neighbor around the intersection of Dwight and Nile Streets that's offered up space for the memorial. And I hope someone steps up to the plate soon. It'd be nice if everyone in the PSA in San Diego community had a memorial to visit and remember the loved ones that were lost on September 25th, 1978. I'm sure whichever homeowner offers up their land to host the memorials, thinking more about the community than themselves, think they should be praised for their generosity and also have a house that's a little piece of aviation history so i hope one of those neighbors steps up soon shows love for the community 
and I hope that plaque in Councilmember Ward's office finds a permanent home. Thanks again to Kim Whittemore and Mary Frances Riley for helping out with this episode. Well, I think that's going to do it for Flight 182. Tess, you want to hear some stories from the world of airline news? Let's hear them, Michael. JetBlue has become the first domestic airline to start utilizing a new ultraviolet light cabin system developed by Honeywell to aid in sanitizing passenger cabins between flights. Currently, JetBlue is testing the new technology at two airports, JFK in New York and Fort Lauderdale Hollywood International Airport in Florida. I watched a video online and the machine looks like a robot. It's basically a beverage cart with two long, high-powered lights for arms. Between flights, the machine slowly rolls down the aisle of the plane, both arms extended, sweeping over the rows of seats, blasting the cabin with ultraviolet light, hopefully taking down any viruses or bacteria left behind the last plane load of human beings. Apparently, the machine can hit the entire cabin in 10 minutes or less. JetBlue president Joanna Garrity said in a statement, With the safety of our crew members and customers our first priority, JetBlue's Safety from the Ground Up initiative is maintaining a layered approach to safety by ensuring healthy crew members, providing flexibility, adding space, reducing touch points, and keeping surfaces clean and sanitized. As we look to add additional layers of protection by utilizing cutting-edge technology, we have identified the Honeywell UV cabin system as a potential game-changer when it comes to efficiently assisting in our efforts to sanitize surfaces on board. Well, Tess, it seems like this new virus-killing robot has joined in on the fight against coronavirus. Would you like to fly on a JetBlue plane after it's been scanned by one of these new machines? I would, Michael. This is yet another reason why I love JetBlue. Yeah, I feel like I had expectations at the beginning of the pandemic that we'd have a lot of futuristic technologies like instantaneously. And then I was disappointed when we couldn't even make Q-tips. Right, (laughs) yeah, or provide hand sanitizer to everyone. Yeah, or we didn't have toilet paper. So it's kind of nice to see at least one element of like futuristic technology making it out of there. I'm also happy that killer robots apparently literally exist. Yeah, apparently. Hopefully they don't take over the world. Yeah, hopefully they just stick to killing viruses. Alaska Airlines is adding six new routes to its flight schedule on the West Coast. The airline has announced that by March 2021, they plan on flying from San Diego to Missoula, San Francisco to Missoula, San Jose to Missoula, San Francisco to Boise, San Jose to Bend, Oregon, and San Jose to Spokane, Washington. Alaska also announced a few weeks ago that they will be expanding their routes out of LAX in the near future. The airline will fly from LAX to smaller markets in the Northwest Alaska will also fly from LAX to Tampa, LAX to Fort Myers, Florida, and two Hawaiian flights have been added as destinations out of LAX as well. While expanding with the new routes, Alaska has been cutting back in other areas. CEO Brad Tilden has said that the company may have to cut 30% of its workforce by the end of the year due to the drop in demand for air travel. So Tess, it seems like a mixed bag of good and bad info coming out of Alaska Airlines. It's interesting how smaller cities that are a little more isolated are the desirable places in 2020. What do you think? Yeah, that's interesting. So do you think that the reason they're switching up their routes is because more people are wanting to travel to these smaller cities? Yeah, I think that they're trying to meet demand. I don't think they're flying, you know, 737s to these cities. They're probably smaller planes, but Mm -hmm. they're 
cutting back, you know, b- flying between Seattle and Los Angeles, big cities, and they're fl- uh, improving their routes from LA to smaller markets. Well, I guess they're just meeting the demand, right? I mean, that's good to know that they are listening to their customers. Yeah, I think smaller cities close to national parks and hiking trails and the great outdoors are going to be at the desirable places to be for a little bit. Right, yeah. You talk about Missoula a lot. Yeah, I'd like to check it out. Destination. I would like to check it out. On Monday, August 10th, 2020, TSA announced that they screened over 831,000 passengers at U.S. airports on Sunday, August 9th, the highest number of passengers screened since March 17th. This figure was a 66% decline compared to the same time in 2019. So air travel seems to be picking up somewhat, but it's still a third of what it was last year, and the pandemic is still raging along. Tess, is this good news or bad news that airlines are seeing more passengers? I think for me, it's great news. Yeah, I mean, I'm as you know, I'm a shareholder of Alaska. <laughs> One share. So yes, I have a single share. But that makes you a shareholder. <laughs> um, no, I'm excited. I hope that it continues to pick back up. Yeah, in the short term, it's good for airlines because, you know, we don't want people to lose their jobs. But it seems like until we get cases down, we're not going to be able to go back to life as normal. And more people out and about means uh, pandemic's probably going to rage along. But good for airlines. I'm happy for the airlines. Lastly, European airline executives from Air France, KLM, and Lufthansa have written a letter to Canada requesting that the Canadian government ease travel restrictions so flights between Europe and Canada can resume. Since March 16th, 2020, the Canadian government has banned all non-Canadians from entering the country in an attempt to control the coronavirus outbreak. There's a mandatory 14-day quarantine for anyone entering Canada right now for essential needs. In the letter from European executives, it says Canada should look to remove the restrictions on travel to European Union and Swiss nationals and allow for a safe, cautious, and sensible restoration of travel between two important trading partners – Canada has made tremendous strides during the pandemic, but it cannot remain isolated forever. So apparently the Europeans are really missing the Canadians and they want to hang out and socialize. Notice that no one's clamoring for us Americans to come visit anytime soon. Tess, do you feel like the entire world's about to throw a massive party and we aren't invited? Yeah, it's interesting. Europe is just begging the Canadians to come (laughs) over and America got no such invite, eh? I feel like the least they could do is let us know they want us to have like a glass of wine with them over Zoom or Skype. Yeah, a Zoom. I mean, we could do a socially distanced party. Why not? Like, we get it. You don't want to hang out with us in person, but at least just extend the invite. FaceTime us. I've always wanted to go to Italy and the UK, and I wonder if that'll happen sometime soon or if they're just permanently not going to want to hang out with us. Well, Michael, I have no doubt that you will get there eventually. I hope so. Um, Going back to travel bans really quickly, I was just reading something interesting about them in the Atlantic the other day. Apparently, they're not always as effective as you would think they are. Um, I was reading that they can sometimes create a surge in travel right before the ban goes into effect. That makes sense. Um, And the other thing is that people still are able to kind of find loopholes around these bans by taking multiple flights. Yeah, I don't think loopholes would work for me because... I want to feel welcome wherever I go. If I go to Iceland, I'm going to have to show my ID eventually. And I want people to be like, oh, you belong here. Not be like, you're from that country that we currently have a ban against. What are you doing here? Right. Yeah. You won't even get off the plane if there's not a parade to welcome you. Yes. I've been known to be stuck on multiple planes because of my disappointment (laughs) at the lack of a parade. (laughs) I like champagne, flowers, the whole nine yards. 
Um, that's going to do it for today's episode of PCPC number 28. Thanks to Tess Andrade for joining us as always. Tess, you want to say something to the peeps? Thank you so much, peeps. Pleasure to be here as always. And happy 28th episode. Yeah. Thanks to the Patreon crew. You guys are amazing. If you go to patreon.com forward slash plane crash pod, you can join and help out the podcast and we'd really appreciate it. Thank you to Mary Francis. Thank you to Kim Whittemore. Um, we're on Twitter at Plane Crash Pod. If you have time, can leave a review. We'd really appreciate it. We're on Instagram at Plane Crash Podcast. And if you go to planecrashpod.com, you can check out our uh, official website as well. I hope you're all hanging in there. This is a marathon we're running in 2020, not a sprint. I hope you're finding some ways to relax your mind and enjoy life the best you can during a pandemic. Read books, meditate, go for hikes. Take care of your friends and families. We'll have another episode for you guys soon. I love you guys. Hang in there. Bye-bye.